One of the things that we've been doing for the last few weeks has been just kind of taking a look at what the effect does. What's the method in the madness here? You know, why do we do what we do? What is the whole purpose? And kind of going through and breaking it down because there, there is a difference in the way we at the effect approach our faith walk and the way that, that many community churches do and, and, and Western Christianity as a whole. And, and part of it comes out of our work as a recovery ministry since we were been working with alcoholics and addicts for the entire time and, and actually before that for about 15 years as a group. We realized that just talking about theology and, and talking about abstract concepts does nothing for an addict or an alcoholic because they need something that is concrete, ground level, and is completely connected to the choice that they're going to make in the next few minutes. But as I began working in recovery, I realized that's true for every single one of us. And furthermore, every single one of us is recovering from something. And so that being said, we realized that this way of approaching Jesus from a first century Eastern Hebrew point of view made perfect sense because the Jews are nothing if not practical. They are so practical. They are so connected to the earth. They are so focused on right here and right now. They don't even have a doctrine of the afterlife. Jews don't have a set doctrine of the afterlife. You can basically believe whatever you want to believe. So when they talk about salvation, it's not about that. It's not about afterlife and heaven and and heavenly reward. It's about spiritual liberation right here and right now. So one of the distinguishing marks of the effect is that we look at things through the lens of the effect and not necessarily through theology. We believe that there is no effect to what we believe theologically or in our faith walk, then how can we say that we believe anything at all? If our belief doesn't change the way that we process our attitudes, our choices in day-to-day life, then what have we got? Jesus was so committed and focused to transformation. Paul echoes that. It's about the effect. And so, at the same time, like I was just explaining, we are focused on the practical day-to-day application of our faith and our beliefs and not something that is abstract. We are looking for the experiential and not just the intellectual. One thing that you find in recovery or in therapy or anything is that if you just think about it, nothing changes. When you do something different, then life opens up. And so we're looking for experience rather than just intellect. Come at Jesus from an Eastern point of view, not a Western point of view. That changes the way that we look at Scripture, of course. Because what Scripture has been interpreted as in the West is through the lens of Greek philosophy and Roman law. And so it changes the Eastern message of Jesus that underlies that. So the best we can do is understand his words from the viewpoint of its first followers. What did the people living in his time, in his culture, in his worldview, speaking his language, understand by the words he said? That's the closest we're going to get. And so we take pains to try to go there. And maybe, as importantly or most importantly, we look at our faith relationally and not legally. Jesus was so strong that this is not about following rules. This is not about following the law. This is not about conformance. It's about transformance. It's about fulfilling law from the inside out, not the outside in. And so when you take all of that together, those differences, what we're really pointing to is a contemplative way of life as opposed to I maybe a dogmatic 
way of living our faith. Y'all know what dogma is? Yeah. Dogma is a set of beliefs that has been handed down from an authority that is so strong that it's just taken at face value. It's believed because of the authority from which it came and for no other reason. The church has been like that for centuries, for millennia, handing out traditions, handing out beliefs, handing out doctrines that are really dogma because they just came out of the church hierarchy, the church authority, and people believed it. The contemplative way of life is letting go of everything that we think we know, letting go of everything that we even feel if it's taking us in negative directions, letting go of our biases, letting go of our expectations, and just allowing ourselves to be in this moment. Let the moment speak for itself and not overlay all these different layers of expectations and beliefs and biases and doctrines and dogma that can cloud and can shelve us off from the direct experience of God's presence. All of that takes us in new directions. You know, why is this important? Why is a contemplative way of life important? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning. Yesterday, or it was a couple of days ago, I was having lunch with someone who asked me to, um, to, to just help them through a really tough stretch that they're having in their life right now. She's gone through two deaths, kind of back-to-back within a couple of months. People that were very close to her, people that she's really grieving right now. And as she's explaining what she's feeling and, and the, the grief that she's going through, kind of in between the tears, she's saying, did God really plan all this? Does God plan all these things? See, a question like that is so central. A question like that is so heartrending because it speaks right to our ability to trust God. How do we trust a God that took our loved ones from us? How do we trust a God that maybe planned all the difficult things that we're facing and all the difficult things that we're going through? What I did with her was to take her through a little riff that I do, and some of you have heard it. For her, it was brand new, so it was great. (laughs) My jokes were still new. For you all, maybe not so much, but here's the thing. I have come to believe that God is not so interested in the what's of life. He's interested in the how. What do I mean by that? See, we're focused, and we are almost obsessively focused on what, the details, what we're supposed to do, what job we're supposed to take, what person we're supposed to marry, what ministry we're supposed to go to. We want the what's mapped out for us. When we talk about God's will and wanting to know God's will for our life, we're looking for a roadmap through all those what's, all those choices and decisions, because what we're really looking for is the perfect insurance policy. We want the map of everything that we're supposed to do so that we won't make any mistakes, we'll take the risk right out of life, and we will get to the outcome that we think we want. That's the key. We're looking for an outcome. We're looking for the way things are supposed to be as we imagine them right now, and we want that bright line to it. But God doesn't give us the what's, does he? We don't know what is coming. There is never a decision that we can have enough information for so that it will be risk-free. And so we're torn by these things. And when these things happen, the difficult things in life, then we're wondering what in the world God is doing up there. Did he orchestrate all of this? I believe that God is not so much interested in the what. He's interested in the how. That his will is not about the details of life, the choices in life, the circumstances of life. 
His will is centered in how we navigate all that stuff, how we negotiate it. The attitudes that we carry through, our ability to continue to move through and not become paralyzed in the midst of these things. God doesn't give us what, but he's always telling us the how. It's screaming off every page of scripture. It's coming out in life. We know how we're supposed to live in terms of how we're supposed to treat each other, how we're supposed to be grounded in this moment right now and not off in the remorse of the past or the anxiety of the future and all the other abstract things that we can bring to mind and keep in mind and circle constantly in mind. And so I was telling her about this. Now, this is just another mental construct, and I admit that. It's my way of looking It may not be your way or her way. And so I told her, whatever you choose becomes your personal theology. And there is wiggle room in Scripture. We can do this. It's okay. right? We don't need the dogma. We don't need the church to come down and tell us exactly how we're supposed to look at this faith life. And the truth of the matter is, any theology you adopt is worthless until it becomes a personal theology for you. Something that you have worked through in the laboratory of your life and found that it actually matches the path. It meets the needs that you have as you move through life, and life mugs you and does all the things that it does. You need to develop a personal theology. You need to come up with a paradigm that allows you to move through life still with trust, even in the difficult times, with the ability to love even the difficult people, and the ability to be present right here, right now, accepting each moment as it is without having to have any artificial ingredients and sweeteners to numb you out and get you through the next 24 hours. If your personal theology does that, leaves your connection with God intact, then it's not broke. Don't fix it. But whatever you choose is going to answer certain questions and it's going to beg others. You know, Mary doesn't typically agree with my idea here because for her it makes... God seem more remote. When God is involved in each decision and each circumstance and each event in your life, he's much more present. For me, it, it seems like it could be more remote. Now, I don't feel that way with God. I feel that he's right here right now. It's just that he is not pulling each string. Where do these events come from? Where do these what's come from in life? Typically, what happens to you in life is the result of your own choices, right? Consequences, the result of the choices of others, not even the ones near you, but when somebody in Washington, D.C. makes a decision, it affects all of us, doesn't it? Right? And so those choices have a cumulative effect, positive, negative in our life, but it's not God doing it. It's us doing it. And then there's a third place. It's just what unfortunately have been called acts of God, but I don't want to call it that. I'm going the other way. It's just nature doing its thing. Earthquakes and tornadoes and diseases. You know, in the long run, all of that stuff makes life on this planet as we know it possible, right? Plate tectonics and wind and weather. It's just not great when your house is on the fault line when the earthquake goes off or you're in the path of the tornado. We call that evil. We call that bad because it's frustrating our outcome and our desires. But really, it's making life possible as we know it. And in the longest run, All of this works together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Remember that one? And so here we are. We're trying to process it. We're trying to understand. If this what versus how is true, 
If God cares more about the, the how, the attitude and the way through which we move through our circumstances, and that he's not really concerned with the rest, it changes the way that we're going to process things. And if this is true and God cares more in this direction, then it seems that we should model the same. We need to start letting go of our obsession with the what's, with the details of life, with everything that we carry around in our mind and move beneath that into pure experience of what really is happening at the moment so that we can be connected to people who are with us right now and not off someplace thinking about the next move that we're going to make or how this has infected that and so on and so forth. We need to start to become present here. That is the contemplative way of life. Focused right here and right now. That does not mean that we never think abstractly. Of course we do. That we never plan for the future or learn from the past. But it means that there's balance. That when we go up into our minds to think with an unconstrained way, that we come right back in for a landing and not stay up there. And so that we're never present here. We're talking about balance. That's what's going on. We talked about um, last week of Jesus looked at by the West as a social reformer as a revolutionary, as a radical. And I was trying to paint him as an accidental reformer, an accidental radical, because that wasn't really his main point. That really wasn't what he was after. To call Jesus a social reformer is to assume first that his primary concern was the what, the circumstances, and to try to change things from the top down. But when you look at the record in the New Testament, every time Jesus was presented with the opportunity to take power, the opportunity to be able to change things from the top, he denied it. He put it away. He pushed it off. Because that wasn't his main concern. His main concern was to turn heart lights on. His main concern was to reach individuals, to connect them with their Father's presence so that they could make their own choices through all of this. And yes, that's going to have an impact on society, of course. When he starts to treat women and children with equal respect as he treats men, what in the world is going to happen if more and more people took on those attitudes? Of course it would be reform, but reform from the bottom up. Reform almost as a byproduct of living well in this more contemplative way. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. He had the opportunity to take on power, but he chose to die instead. He chose to just live his life out withholding nothing, speaking truth to power, but not taking power himself. And they executed him for it. This is Jesus' way. He's not about reform, and he's not about conforming. He's about transforming. And that is the key that we need to learn. It's not about living life from the outside in, reforming, conforming. It's about from the inside out, the transformation. And then any action that comes out of that is going to have integrity. It's going to have authority. It's going to have power because it's all connected with how we're living our lives. And that's exactly what people said about Jesus. I wanted to read you a little bit, a couple of paragraphs from... uh, a passage from Richard Rohr, and then from Thomas Merton. Maybe this will bring this right to a point. Rohr writes, Over the years, I met many social activists who were doing excellent social analysis and advocating for crucial social justice issues, but they were not working from an energy of love except in their own minds. They were still living out of their false self, 
with a need to win, the need to look good, the attachment to a superior, politically correct self-image. They might have the answer, but they themselves are not the answer. In fact, they are often part of the problem. That's one reason that most revolutions fail. Too many reformers self-destruct from within. For that very reason, I believe, Jesus and great spiritual teachers first emphasized transformation of consciousness and soul. Unless that happens, there's no lasting or grounded reformer revolution. When a subjugated people rise to power, they often become as controlling and dominating as their oppressors because the same demon of power has never been exercised in them. Any of you read the history of the French Revolution? You know, it seemed like the cure was worse than the disease there at some point, right? They weren't ready for this. We need less reformation and more transformation. The lie always comes in a new form that looks like enlightenment. We are easily allured by the next new thing, the new politically correct agenda. And then we discover it's run by unenlightened people who in fact do not love God, but love themselves. They do not love the truth, but they love control, the need to be in power, to have control, and to say someone else is wrong is not enlightenment. Such unenlightened leaders do not love true freedom for everybody but freedom for their new ideas. They do not love true freedom for everybody but freedom for their new ideas. In other words, we're going through reform, but we're not changing ourselves. Thomas Keating tells a wonderful story. I think I've told it to some of you in here about a young man who was a drunk and he got great, a great rush from drinking his friends under the table. And so he'd be at the pub, he'd be at the bar, and when he was the last one standing and everybody else was passed out, he got this great elation and rush because he had, he had done this. And then at one point in his life, he sees the errors of his way and he joins a monastery. And he goes into the monastery and he becomes the best monk there is. You know, he's up at two in the morning and he's saying his prayers and he's ringing the bell and he's washing the floors and doing everything that he's supposed to do. He's a model monk. And then it comes Lent, the, the period before Easter. And they enter the great fast of the 40 days of fasting. And as he starts the fast, he notices night after night as he's going into the refectory, the, the cafeteria where they eat, that a few of the older monks are starting to drop off because they're getting ill and infirm from you know, trying to do this fast. And then more and more are dropping off. And by the time he gets to Good Friday, he's the only one left in the refectory and he gets this rush and this elation because now he fasted all his fellow monks under the table. What changed in the young man? Nothing, right? Absolutely nothing changed. All he did was change uniforms. He changed the direction of his obsession from one thing to another. He reformed. He conformed. But he didn't transform. I remember when I walked away from the Catholic Church, my mother was so beside herself and she was trying to bring me back into the Catholic, the one true church. And every time we'd go up to visit... She would always have tracts prepared for me and, and different things that she wanted me to read so that I could see the error of my ways and come back to the church. And one time when we got, went up there, she was so excited because she had found a tape by a Protestant apologeticist, apologist, apologeticist who was trying to debunk the Catholic Church. And so he did all this research on, on Catholicism so that he could debunk it and show how wrong it was. And in the process of all that study, he realized it wasn't wrong. And he became converted to Catholicism. And now he was spending all of his time debunking Protestantism. What changed in the man? 
nothing. He just got on the other side of the fence. This is what we're after. Not just changing uniforms, not just changing sides, but actually changing from the inside out. Transformation is really hard. It's hard to do. It necessitates that you let go in this contemplative process to let go of everything that you think you are and everything that you think you know so that you can really just see truth as God is presenting it. It's much easier just to change uniforms, much easier just to conform to something new. Thomas Merton writes, What is the relation of contemplation to action? Simply this, He who attempts to act and do many things for others or for the world without deepening his own self-understanding, freedom, integrity, and capacity to love will not have anything to give others. He will communicate to them nothing but the contagion of his own obsessions, his aggressiveness, his ego-centered ambitions, his delusions about ends and means, his doctrinaire prejudices and ideas. There is nothing more tragic in the modern world than the misuse of power and action. Don't you wish Merton would just get to the point and say what he means? That's pretty hard-hitting. It's pretty indicting. But it's true. It's what we're doing all the time. You can see this over and over again. We watch addicts and alcoholics sometimes come over to the AA side and become so aggressively, so legalistically AA that they're killing all the relationships around them just as much as they were killing them when they were using and drinking. It's the same person who has just switched one obsession for another. We want to break that stranglehold. We want to go in a different direction. Now, I'd like to tell you that my spiritual path was born and birthed out of transformation. I'd really like to tell you that. But it wouldn't be true. (laughs) I can look back as I was starting to work really hard on finding a place, not only within a church and within a religion, but, but just within my own life, trying to find a place where I felt comfortable. And the path that took me on the road to ordination, to wanting to be a pastor in the first place. But it was all driven by my programs for happiness, my own programs for survival that had been put in place when I was a kid. Somehow as a kid, through the combination of my upbringing and my own wiring, I came to believe that I was not good enough. I came to believe that I had to excel. I came to believe that I needed to prove myself and get approval. And the only way that I knew that I counted at all was when I was getting applause or when I was getting attaboys, when I was being approved of. And I obsessively went over after those things. And whatever I was doing, whether it was sports or music, religion, whatever. And I realize now, even 25, 30 years ago, that was so much in place and so much of what I did was still being driven by those things. Now because I was just as obsessive about being contemplative, <laughs> thank God, I, I wanted to be Thomas Merton you know, at one point in my life. And I tried to become, I pretended I was a monk in the city and I did all the things that I did to bring solitude and silence in my life. I was getting changed in a way that I didn't even realize. And there was a point that I broke through. And then what I felt was that the tail was no longer wagging the dog. Even though I was still working just as hard and even though from the outside in it may have looked like nothing changed, I knew internally that it had. That something had changed. That 
even though I began to believe that God really didn't care whether I was a pastor or not, that wasn't the issue, except that I was a, a good pastor with the right how, and that I loved being a pastor in many ways, and some not so much, but that I wasn't that. That was a role that I play. It wasn't me. And to make that separation changed everything. Because now I could be a better pastor without all the clinging and cloying things that were attached to it when I first started. I still did good things, even when I was all neurotic and messed up. But I also hurt a lot of the people that were closest to me by the choices I made and the way that I went about things. And it didn't have to be that way if I could have figured stuff out sooner. But this was my path. And it's the one that has brought me here. It's up to each one of us to be ruthlessly honest with ourselves and look and see what is really driving us. Is it the fear from these past programs that we have put in place to survive, to feel okay about ourselves, to get through? Or are we transformed enough that this action is flowing out of us effortlessly, is flowing out of us in such a way that it really does rise, raise the boats higher that are around us? Now the question you probably should be coming to is, how do we move from conforming to transforming, from reforming to transforming. And of course the answer is you've got to detach from these programs of happiness, these programs for survival, you know, from the, from the agendas that we put in, from our ego, if you want to look at it that way. Detach from the fear-based living. We talked about Jesus in, in, the, in the desert, in the wilderness last week, and the fact that he was really shouting down, fighting down the need, the human need to be relevant and powerful and spectacular. You know, basically the sum total of all these obsessive drives. But the question remains, how do we detach? You try to use analogies. You try to use metaphors. Something that can bring the concept to light. But again, we're just thinking about it here. Until you actually do it, nothing changes. But it's like waking up inside your dream realizing that you're dreaming, but that the dream isn't real. See, to the dreamer, the dream is just as real as the waking life, and you live it as if it's real. And if it's a nightmare, you feel everything that the nightmare makes you feel. And you're running, and you're running, and you're trying, and you're trying, and you can't get out of the loop because you believe it's real. But if you could just wake up inside that dream and realize, it's just a dream. There's nothing here that can hurt me. Everything changes. You can make different choices in that dream. When we are living the false self, the ego-driven self, when we are living under these programs for happiness that were put in place when we were children, whether we were abused or neglected or whatever happened in our lives that caused us to put these programs in place, this need to control, this need to be approved of, whatever It's as if we are sleepwalking through life. It's as if we are living the dream. We think those programs are real. We think those attitudes are real. We think those fears are real. We think we need to do these things or we will not survive. We need to do these things or we will never be accepted. We believe that is real and we live them as if they are real. We become them. Our lives become them. How do we wake up? See, this is what the contemplative, contemplative life offers us. It offers, offers us the ability to experience the difference between us, you, and that ego, that false self, those programs. 
You start to open up a space. You're not inside the bubble like a black hole where nothing escapes. You can suddenly get that space, a curtain parts, and you can see another there out there. And you realize, I am not this. I'm something else. There is a way for me to get there. You have to first get that glimpse to realize that there's another way that you can live. Contemplation allows you to begin to enter into a deeper silence, to let go of the habitual thoughts, the habitual feelings that are part of the programming and always taking you to these places over and over again, to let us know that we are not our thoughts. That voice that talks to you in your head is not you, and the things that it tells you are not necessarily true. But we're not going to know that until we can start to let go those thoughts and feelings are basically byproducts of our mind and our body. There's a deeper, a deeper us. Another analogy, storm at sea. You're on the surface in a boat, in a storm, and the waves are huge and everything's crashing and blowing and you're being buffeted about like that and you think you're going to die. If you could go down 10 meters under the surface, you'd still be move back and forth, but not quite so bad as the surface, right? Go down another 10 meters, and now you're kind of doing the circular motion. You go down another 10 meters, and it's perfectly still. All the craziness is up here at the surface. If we can go deeper, we're going to find that stillness. We're going to find that center. Spiritually, it's just like that. At the surface of our lives, the storm is raging. But down deep, there is a center that doesn't move, the center that is connected to our God. That doesn't mean we can live down there all the time. We can't just sit on the slopes of the hill and contemplate our navels. No, we have to actually act in life. But the balance is what's going to get us through the storm knowing that the calmness is underneath, that we can do this. There's a consciousness exercise that we do with our clients often. And we have them close their eyes, pick a word, any word, doesn't matter what it is, and say that word exactly 40 times. Now you can't use your fingers, you can't use your toes, you can't use a calculator. In your mind, with your eyes closed, you've got to say that word exactly 40 times and you can use any method you want to use. And we just give them time and we say, everybody open your eyes when you're done. And then after they open their eyes, you know, how'd you do it? Well, some people group things into four and say that 10 times, some group into five. And if you lose count because you started thinking about something else, right, then you've got to start all over again until you've done it exactly 40 times all in one stretch. The question is though, after you've successfully completed the task, I have said dog 40 times. Who is it that actually said that your task was complete? Your mind, that voice that talks to you, is doing the task. Who's the one who is the taskmaster? Who is the one that is offline watching and saying, okay, you completed, kind of like mom watching the kid do the homework? and telling him or her when it's done. Who is that person? See, there is a deeper you. It's often called the watcher, the one that watches over. When we separate ourselves from our thoughts, we can consider them, we can look at them dispassionately from that still center and realize that's not us. We can let them go. Thomas Keating, in his books on centering prayer, has a beautiful analogy of sitting at the banks of a river. And you're quietly sitting and you're peacefully sitting and you're watching the stream of the river go by and it's carrying logs and, and flotsam and jetsam and different pieces of things. And you're watching them go by and you realize, these are my thoughts. These are my feelings. Oh, isn't that interesting? Much. If you don't grab onto it, if you don't swim out to get it, if you just let it go on by, this is the process of the watcher watching but not getting involved in the thinking. 
This is the contemplative practice in prayer and meditation of starting to separate ourselves from these thoughts. Why is this so important? Because most religious and psychological activities are doing everything they can to support and strengthen the ego, the false self, the agenda. Think about it. What is petitionary prayer? Our almost obsessive focus on asking for things in prayer, asking God to change things and change circumstances, no matter how well-meaning, no matter how good the cause, we're trying to stay in control. We're strengthening that part of us that wants what it wants now rather than letting go. A lot of ministries have prosperity gospels. They call them, God wants you to be prosperous. God wants you to have whatever it is you already think you want to have right now, which is just supporting and strengthening the programs for happiness that you already have. Legalism. Follow the rules. Just follow the law perfectly and God is going to accept you into heaven. Break the rules and you're going the other way. This need for us to be in control. The law gives us the lever. The law gives us the control point. If we can just follow it perfectly, we're going to get everything we want. It's strengthening the programs rather than deconstructing them. Psychologically, the whole self-esteem movement, stand in the mirror and just tell yourself how wonderful you are. You know, if that works for anybody, I apologize. Let me know. It's never worked for me. You know? The whole idea of self-discovery, trying to find out who you really are and strengthening that, become more aggressive, less aggressive, mean this, that, whatever. You know, the idea of therapy itself is all about turning a negative self-image, a negative ego, positive. But you're still strengthening what's there. See, in contemplation, it's not about going positive, trying to be better at the what's of life, or better as you imagine yourself to be, it's letting go of the ego altogether. Stepping aside from it altogether. Letting you be whatever you are at the bottom of the dog pile when everything is cleared, when all the decks are cleared. Stepping away, detaching. Seeing the ego as a necessary tool the ego is a necessary tool. How in the world are we going to go through life unless we have a sense of ego? And yes, it's better for it to be positive than negative, yes. But it's still a tool. It's not us. It's like a hammer. It's a tool, but the carpenter knows he's not the hammer. Ever heard this one? You know, if you're a hammer, then everything in the world looks like a nail. And that's the problem. When we think we are our ego, the whole world looks like that which serves our ego. And we never see it as it is. We don't see other people as they are. We don't relate to them as we could because we're trapped inside this dream, inside this nightmare. Meditation, centering prayer, is time spent in quiet, time spent in solitude that starts the process of gaining the awareness that we need, the detachment that we need. Thomas Keating, again, says this this perfectly. He talks about how memories and and information from our subconscious will bubble up as we start a regular process of meditation and centering prayer. That was exactly my experience. It was weird, though, because it didn't happen during the prayer session. I thought during the prayer session was when I would get these great insights. But you know what? If you get a great insight during centering prayer or meditation, what are you supposed to do? Step away. That's not the time or the place to be thinking. It's a time to just let go and sit in God's presence and let that healing touch begin. But these things would bubble up all other times of the day. Memories from my childhood that I forgot that I forgot. 
But not just the memory itself, but a bright line to, oh, that's why I do this and such now. That's why I have this attitude. That's why I feel this way. And then I could start to release them. It's the process that happens. I didn't know it, but I was becoming more and more free. As I practiced something, even though I was practicing it kind of obsessively, trying to be Thomas Merton, the effect was taking place without me even knowing it. Okay, by now you should be asking the question, is this grounded in anything scriptural? Right? Or am I just talking psychobabble up here? Was Jesus contemplative? That's really the question that we have to answer. Now, you're not going to find that word in the New Testament. Go and Don't go look in your concordance and try to find contemplation in the New Testament. You won't find it. It's not there. But there are clues. There are clues that we can look at. We talked about Jesus being in the wilderness. And take a look at Mark 1, starting at verse 9. We read this last week, but just really quickly. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan, immediately coming up out of the water, immediately coming up out of the water. He saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him and a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. And then immediately again, the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. This is a beautiful depiction of of the contemplative path if you look at it from that point of view. If you look at it literally only, you know, as just Jesus going out into the desert for a month and a week, then it's not going to carry the same weight. But when we realize that 40 to the ancients was a symbolic number that meant a time of trial and testing that led into a rebirth, into a transformation, then we start to realize that this was a long period of Jesus' life. He had 18 unaccounted for years from 12 to 30 in the New Testament. We don't know how long, but we do know that he went into a place of solitude. He went into a place of silence. And the first thing to show up were the wild beasts. You notice that right there? And that's the experience. If you think contemplation is just going to be all sweetness and light, it's going to be difficult. Because those thoughts, those programs, those feelings die a really hard death. They don't want to, they want to survive. They want to live. They want to live with you. And it's difficult. The process is difficult for letting them go. The desert fathers and mothers in the third and fourth century who also went out into the wilderness mimicking Jesus here to try to find their silence, to find their connection. Many of them are depicted in myths and stories and legends as slain dragons and slaying these great demons and beasts. Same depiction of the same difficulties they had in putting down the things in their life that were bedeviling them to let go of these things. Luke 5.16, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This was an ongoing process. He didn't just do it once in the wilderness and then come in and and do his public ministry and never go back. You see him over and over again going out, moving to an outer but also an inner silence and solitude. And he did this on an ongoing basis. Look at Matthew 6, verse 6. When you pray, now he's telling us how to pray, teaching us how to pray. When you pray, go into your inner room. Close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, in the context, he's contrasting this to the Pharisees 
who at the set three times of prayer would make sure they were at the busiest street corner or in the marketplace so that they could make a great show. And they lengthened their tassels on their prayer shawl and they enlarged their phylacteries that they wore and weren't they great prayers because look what they were doing. You know, all about strengthening the false ego, all about the agenda, all about the programs that they had put in place for their aggrandizement, for their advancement in society. And Jesus says, don't be like that. Retreat. Go into your own secret place. And that can be a physical place. That's where the prayer closet idea comes from. Great concept. But you can do it on your patio. You can do it in your living room. doesn't really matter. But also interiorly in retreat into a silence and solitude that allows you to separate from all of those programs. Your father will see what's in secret. Nobody else will. But who we really are is what we do when we think no one is watching, right? What do we do then? How does that change us? This is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. And then three verses later, when he's giving us the Lord's Prayer, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed doesn't mean much to us. Holy be your name. Dedicated be your name. Sanctified be your name. Those would all be good synonyms for us. If we understand what Jewish prayer is all about, we realize that slotha, which is prayer, or selah, which is to pray, literally is a hunting term. It means to clear a space, to set a trap, to, to, to go into the woods and quietly set this snare, cover it over, retreat into the blinds, and wait expectantly for something to happen. It literally means to incline toward or to lean into. The prayer for a Jew is not so much words that you say, although they had words, but it was an internal attitude. It was a stance that you took. It was a way of connecting. And this is what Jesus is saying here. Our Father in heaven, how do we sanctify your name? How do we dedicate your name? How do we make it holy? By clearing this space and literally setting a trap for God. That's what we're doing. We're setting a trap for God in our lives by clearing this place, being someone with every hair trigger, is aware, connected, and focused on this present moment. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. At Matthew 5, 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now once again, in context, he said, you've heard it, Love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. But I'm going to tell you this. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Really, I think those two phrases are one and the same. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. It's kind of like Jewish poetry that just keeps repeating the same concept over and over again. How do we love our enemies? By praying for them. How do we pray for them? By just saying, oh God, please grant them whatever. There's another petitionary prayer. Or how about that stance? How about that inclining toward? What's the best way to love someone but to actually pay attention to them, to lean into them, to identify with them, to see them as part of yourself and treat them accordingly, that those actions flow out of that internal attitude and stance? What better way? What other way is possible to love someone who is your enemy, which means you don't get them, you don't connect with them, you have no feelings of affection for them, but if you can lean into them, if you can have an attitude of acceptance toward them, 
This is what Jesus is trying to get across. This is contemplative life. Look at Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What in the world is Jesus talking about? See, all this comes down to identification. What do you identify with? If you identify with the ego, with the program, with the false self, then all your actions are going to flow out of that. You cannot love the enemy while you're identified here with your ego because the enemy is everything that is attacking the ego. That's why they're the enemy. But if you can step away from that, if you can incline toward the other and re-identify, ultimately with God's spirit, but with the other, at least for now, what changes See, what the Jews of Jesus' day were most identified with was their clan, was their nation, was their family. Because to be outside of nation and community and clan was tantamount to death. You were dead if you weren't inside the family. That's what they identified with. And they identified with the law and all of that acculturation and all of those rules and the purity codes and the dietary codes and everything that strengthened the family and strengthened life in their community. Jesus is saying, if you're not willing to break your identification with those things that most solidly form your program for happiness, how in the world can you follow me? Even to your own life. Now, hate doesn't mean hate in a malicious way. It means to prefer less. Again, balance. It's not that you're going to neglect your family, but you realize you aren't the family. There is a you that stands behind that. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. If you want to transform and not just conform or reform, there is a break that needs to occur. And finally, at 1 Thessalonians, now we turn to Paul. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And I would say that all three of those commands of his are the same thing. To rejoice always. To pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. This is what he's talking about because the prayer is not a prayer of words. You can't pray unceasingly thinking a stream of words or saying a stream of words. But when you are living with this attitude, with this inclined stance, acutely aware of what's going on right in front of you and who you're with, it's going to feel like rejoicing. It's going to feel like gratitude. It's going to live like kingdom that Jesus was always talking about. This is where all of this is going. This is what Jesus is trying. Was Jesus contemplative? I can't say. The way we understand that term, the way I am defining that term for you, I don't know. But I see the evidence here. I see everything that Jesus was about here in these few clues that are given to us. And I see the effect on his life of being one who was intensely engaged in the moment. See, transformance, this transformance that Jesus is talking about, what did he call it? He called it being born again. He called it living water. He called it the bread of life. He called it something that you, you brought into yourself, made part of yourself, identified with, that transformed everything. Comes of, as a result of a practice that first has to deconstruct our ego, this false self. You need to re-identify with the how of ultimate reality. In other words, who the Father is. Until we know who the Father is, how the Father lives, how the Father chooses, we will never see who we really are because we came from that Father and we are returning to that Father. And in truth, 
Even though it seems like we're apart, we never left because the Father is always here living that how through us if we will only just see and accept and identify. So given all of that, what do we do? <laughs> what do we choose? What, what do we go after? You know, It's your choice. With the right how, any what will do. With a contemplative way of living life that is connected to God's Spirit, you know, we're going to make good choices. Now, some what's are incompatible with the how, right? St. Paul had to stop persecuting and executing Christians once he found his how on the road to Damascus, right? And there'll be some of our hows that we're going to have to look at and say, hey, this does not compute. This is, there's no way to do this what with this how. But for most of us, there's nothing we need to change. Brother Lawrence was a genius at this. 16th century French monk. He said, you know, we think we have to invent all these ways of coming at God, but it's not true. All we have to do is what we normally do every single day, but do it for the love of God. In other words, do it with that practice of presence, that contemplative connection, and it becomes a sacred act. That's it. If we can focus less on the what's and more on the how, if we can move into this place and realize we don't necessarily need to change anything we're doing, but infuse it with this intense awareness mindfulness and presence, we can turn our entire lives into prayer. And you might be asking how you do that. That's what we're going to talk about next time. So keep coming back. It works if you work it. <laughs> Let's pray. Oh. Father, thank you for this, Lord. Thank you for those precious clues that you've given us into Jesus' way of connecting with you and living with you and, and praying with you. We want to be more like that. We want to live each day so that we're moving the ball forward a little bit closer to the way Jesus lived, a little bit closer to this kingdom every single day. We want to realize that we never really arrive, that living with you is continuously free-falling into the center of you and will never reach bottom there will always be something more, something new, something surprising, something delicious. We just, Father, we're just looking for that in you. Help us to be more and more unafraid to let go of the things that we cling to so more and more we can see what really is in you, in our scripture, in our reading, in our study, but most importantly, in our lives, in our choices, in our relationships. Father, we love you, and we know that you love us. Help us always remember we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.